0: Soul of the Parsha, with Rabbi Nir This class is made possible by our kind supporters over at Patreon. Thank you and enjoy the class. Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class. We are delving into the Parsha every week. We are opening up the opening of the Parsha. We're opening up the first segment, the first Aliyah, trying to find something to inspire us, to light up our lives, to teach us something about our own world, our own generation, our own personal striving for uh, Avodat Hashem, to serve God. And uh, this week, we are now entering the week of the parsha of Korach. Korach is the 5th parsha in the Book of uh, Numbers, the Book of Bamidbar, and the 38th Parsha of the Torah. And our topic for today is we want to explore the holy root of disagreements, differences of opinion. Why do people differ in opinion so much? This is a staple of human culture ever since it uh, it, it began. People disagree all the time, and groups divide, and they also divide within themselves into subgroups. And wherever you go, on the planet, in whatever period of time, you will find people deeply, deeply disagreeing with one another. And not just on trivial matters, but on the most basic questions that there are. People have absolutely polar opposite differing opinions, and the question is, from a Torah perspective, from a faithful perspective, a perspective that believes in a one God that created all of the universe and all of reality and all of humanity and all of the opinions within humanity, we want to understand what is the root of all disagreements, generally speaking. Why is it so that wherever you go, even in a group that you would think would agree with one another, you would find when you zoom in, when you, you know... Uh, um, when the when the you go high res the higher resolution you go into a picture, you'll find like in a fractal more and more dif- differences of, of opinion. There's right and left, and there's secular and religious, and there's conservative and liberal. And within the group, you will find subgroups again dividing divided within themselves. And so we want to understand the root of disagreements, and especially the the splitting of society into right-wing and left-wing, which is universal in all countries. It takes on different shapes, uh, and the issues that they deal with are different in each country, in each period of time, and it's a very complex issue, but it turned out to be very uh, uh, fruitful to try and divide different opinions according to a sort of left-right spectrum. It's not The only model there is, there are more complicated models. Sometimes it would be multidimensional. It wouldn't be just left and right. You would have a grid of opinions intersecting one another. But it's been very helpful to divide societies into left-right spectrums. So we want to explore the root of that also. And the premise is that on the one hand, believing in in God and believing in the Torah and believing in their being, an absolute divine truth seems to imply two things uh, that go in in opposite directions. On the one hand, it implies that in every debate, in every conflict, in every argument, there has to be one side that's absolutely right and another side that's absolutely wrong, because we are not relativists. If you believe in there being an absolute divine truth, then you're not a relativist. And if you're not a relativist... That means that you don't uh, believe something simple or simplistic like, well, everyone is right or everyone has their own opinion or there's no such thing as right and wrong and there's no such thing as an absolute truth. You don't customarily or tr- traditionally believing people, people who believe in an absolute truth, would dislike this kind of approach, saying "just it's just a matter of opinion or there's no such thing as an absolute truth that is usually a more secular opinion or way of looking at the world. Whereas a more religious view of the world would tend to be more absolutist in the sense that it believes in there being an absolute truth. And therefore it would strive to find in each argument and debate which opinion is more true or is true as opposed to false. On the other hand, the same monotheistic idea and ideal that God created All the universe, all of humanity, all of the groups within humanity, and each and every opinion ever voiced. If all this is coming from one God, it means that in some way, each opinion, even the false ones, even the ones we just rejected, because we are not uh, relativist, or we're not just pluralistic in some simple sense, that we believe that there's no truth, the same opinions we rejected, we also believe that they have a divine root in some way, that it's not coming from nowhere. All aspects of humanity come essentially, ultimately, from God. So the belief in one God on the one hand would make us believe that there uh, there is an absolute truth, which means that one side is wrong and the other side is right. And on the other hand, would al- also implies that in some way, in some deep way, all opinions or all worldviews are somehow also right, at least in their root, because it's all coming in one way or another from the same divine truth, especially if you're not just a monotheist, you're also a chassid. And chassidut is the belief that all of reality has a divine ground, a divine source. It's not just, even if it's something secular or atheistic, it's rooted somehow in divine absolute truth. So how do we balance these two different, opposite ways of looking at the world? This is another kind of uh, uh, disagreement that we have to bridge and see how, how it all works out together. So now we want to see all this and approach all this from the perspective of the opening of this week's parasha Korach. So what is the story? So just a background. In many ways, the story of this parasha is growing out of the previous parasha. In what way? Previous parasha told us about the sin of the spies, the 12 spies. Only 10 of them sinned. But 12 spies were sent to Eretz israel and 10 of them sinned. They told the, the entire people, the Israelites, that the country is unconquerable, and the people believed them. And this was a grave sin, and the punishment was also grave. The punishment was that they have to spend 40 years in the desert until all of the generation of the people who came out of Egypt, uh, except those who were very young, and the two spies that didn't sin, all of them would have to die gradually in the desert. And they're just waiting to pass away. They're waiting until 40 years pass, and the new Fresh generation that never heard of Egypt, and uh, was born in the desert, born with this constant divine revelation of God, would enter the the land of Israel. So this is a very intense period of time, and it's also in many ways a test. If you are someone who believe, who believes, who feels that the, the story, your story, is a multi generational story it's easier for you to bear the fact that your own generation is not the generation of redemption. Because you're thinking in multi-generational terms. You're saying, well, I am only experiencing this generation, and I'm not going to live to see what the next generation holds. But I do believe that my story is part of a much bigger story, which is the story—a multi-generational story a multi-generational story. And I'm comforted by the fact that while I, may, I will not enter the land of Israel, or I may not witness redemption, I'm comforted by the idea that my children will, that the Jewish people as a whole, as an entity, will enter the land of Israel. So you find it easier. But if that's not very much your experience. Your experience is that of the here and now and the individual. The here and now and the individual are more important to you than the uh, long-term future, the next generation, and the people as a whole. You would have a harder time dealing with spending now the rest of your life knowing that you will not enter the land of Israel. In many ways, this is like a um, uh, how do you say this in English? Sir Lachat, That everyone is in one pot, and it's intense and it's boiling and it, it you know it's about to burst it's a kind of pot that you put everything into it and it's uh if someone could could write it in um a pressure cooker there's, there's a bit of a pressure cooker um, and what happens is is that now you have struggles for power and this is classic for people who feel that they're trapped and then they start fighting within one they're fighting within themselves they have now inner disagreements and this is what's happening now this is the first parsha after the punishment to remain in the desert for 40 years and not enter the land and immediately what you have is what's happening in this parsha you have an inner revolt it's classic that whenever a, a society is feels trapped and it's hopeless they start fighting within themselves and this is what's happening here So Korach. Korach is a cousin of Moses and Aaron. He's a Levite, obviously, because Moshe and Aaron are part of the tribe of Levi. He's a Levite, and he's taking some Levites from his own family. He's taking his family, and he's also taking a few friends from the neighboring tribe of Reuben. Reuben are not Levites. They're Israelites. The Jewish people is 12 tribes, and the special tribe of Levi. Within the tribe of Levi you have a special group which is the priests. So together it's the, you have three levels. It's the priests, the Levites, and the Israelites. Kohen Levi Israel. Korach belongs to the middle level. He's a Levite. And he's jealous of the priests. So he's taking his own family of Levites. He's also taking a few friends from the tribe of Reuben who are Israelites. And they're bringing 250 more people with them. And he's organizing a revolt. And who, whom is he rebelling against? He's rebelling against Moses and Aaron. And he's rebelling against them, claiming that they uh, presume to be superior to the rest of the Jewish people. And he says the following... And I'm reading the English translation. They combined against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. You have exceeded your authority or or you crossed some line. For all the community are holy. All the community are holy, all of them. And the Lord is in their midst. We, have all, we are all prophets. We've all stood there at the foothills of Mount Sinai. We all heard God's voice. We all received the Torah. We all contributed to the building of the tabernacle. We all witnessed the miracles in Egypt. All of us are equally holy. Why then do you raise yourselves above the Lord's congregation? So they accuse Moses and Aaron. So there... Uh, Uh, marching under the banner of equality. They're saying everyone is equal, and it's unfair for there to be a priestly caste. That's what they're accusing Moses and Aaron of. In many ways, it's more Aaron than Moses. Moses is something else. But Aaron and his family... Moses is just one person. Aaron and his family and his descendants, they form a caste. And it's a caste within a caste. And interestingly, this isn't coming from, this isn't totally grassroots. It isn't coming from the masses. The masses are okay with Moses. The masses like the fact that Moses and Aaron and the priests are there as a group leading them. Uh, physically and spiritually, out of Egypt and through the desert. The masses are okay with it. But it's the in-between level people, the Levites, like Korach himself, who are jealous. This is also very, very classic. That the people who have a hard time with with the, the concept of an elite in society are not the ones that are very, very, the simple people. You know, in Hebrew we say the Amcha Israel, the Amcha, is the majority of people, people who are very traditional, uh, who are very simple, who are very, you know, they, they work, they really like the fact that they have leaders, spiritual leaders, and it's the people who are a bit up the hierarchy, sort of middle class, they're the ones envious of the higher class. Lower class people being traditional, and being closer to traditions and religious traditions, they find it very, very—it's very straightforward for them to accept the fact that there are castes, or that there are leaders, or that there is a group of people who are their teachers. They like it very much. And the simplest way to see this is if you go to uh, anywhere. Let's say you go to—I'm talking about in Jewish society. You go in Israel to a marketplace. You see the people. Who are, you know, sellers in a marketplace, they don't have a lot of money, they don't have a lot of status, they don't have a lot of education, they have absolutely no problem hanging a lot of, not, not, not only do they not have a problem, they like it very much, to hang pictures of righteous people on their walls. They love adoring and admiring the the wisest and greatest of the sages and the rabbis. But if you go a little bit higher to the more educated religious people, they have a harder time putting hanging on the pictures of the righteous people because they don't like the idea of admiring someone above them. And it, it appears not to make sense because you would appear you would probably be more jealous of the elite if you're on the, on the lower level of the social hierarchy or the social pyramid. But it doesn't work that way. It's the middle class that have a harder time with the concept of the hierarchy. So it's Levi, it's Korach. He's pulling with him a whole bunch of people from the tribe of Reuben, but they're not leading the, the rebellion. They're following Korach. This is interesting. Okay, so it, again, Korach and, and his followers are marching under the banner of equality. However, it very soon transpires, this isn't fully honest, it isn't fully candid. The story is a bit more complicated. How do we see this? A few verses later, Moses is trying to convince them to uh, let go of this rebellion, to to go back, to go back on themselves, to to uh, you know how do you say, dial back, pedal back, back pedal uh, what they are starting. And he's telling them, "Is it not enough for you?" Now he's talking to, of course, Korach the Levi the Levites. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has set you apart from the community of Israel and given you access to him to perform the duties of the Lord's tabernacle and to minister to the community and serve them? Because as we know, the Levites became, again, it's a middle level, it's a middle caste, and they were dedicated to uh, operating and serving and accompanying and carrying the whole operation of the tabernacle. So they already have a very important role to play in the uh, religious infrastructure. You know, in everything how the whole religious operation is is working out. And it says, you have a very important role. Is it not enough for you? And now it says, now that he has advanced you and all of your fellow Levites with you, do you seek the priesthood too? So this is interesting. We thought that they were marching under the banner of equality. But now he's telling them, because he's realizing what this is really all about. It's not really about equality. It's about jealousy of the the upper class, the upper religious class, the priests. They want to be the priests. They want to be the leaders. They want to be on top. They're using the language of equality, or today we would say democracy, uh, in order to convince the people under them and the rest of the people to support them, because it sounds better. It sounds better when you're selling your, your, uh, your, your true goal uh, as something that is completely egalitarian, and it's all about you know camaraderie and equality. But really what they want is that they, is they want the priesthood. And this is made very clear by the fact that they don't answer. The Levites do not answer this. They do not deny it. And it's a famous principle that Shtika kehoda'a, when you're silent, it's an admission. It's a silent admission. So really, they're silently admitting, yes, we're not denying, we want the priesthood. That's really what they're saying. So this is a very interesting story here. You have a, a group who are middle class, who are envious of the upper class, who are uh, selling out this idea of a big egalitarian revolution. Uh, they're able to pull with them a, a whole bunch of people who are from the lower classes, who are, who are convinced that this is the revolution that they want, and um, and they're and they're creating this rebellion. So, what do they do? They do a test. The test is, and this is also again evidence that the real question here is who is going to be the priest this is the question it's not even it's not just a silent admission is the test itself attests to the fact that the whole issue here is who is going to be the priest is it going to be Aaron and his descendants or is it going to be open to everyone and what is the test the test is that Aaron will stand with a kind of, uh, it's called a machta. it's like a frying pan, it's something to hold the incense. And Korach and all of his followers will also stand there with the same offering. And then they say, Moses says, if, let's see what God decides. God will decide whose offering he takes. And if he takes Aaron's offerings, uh, then we know that Aaron is the chosen one. And if he takes the all the the rebels, offerings that we know that they're right. And what happens is, as is well known, it's a very grave punishment. It was a grave sin, and the punishment is also grave. We spoke last time that as we draw near to the land of Israel, more freedom is given, is given in, in, or including the freedom to make mistakes and bear the consequences. So, this is another example of this. So, what happens is, is that the earth opens its mouth and swallows Korach and his family and their property, the Levites, the ones who said that they were anti-hierarchy, but really they wanted to go up the hierarchy. So they go down the hierarchy. (laughs) They get swallowed alive, and they fall into the Sheol. Sheol is, is kind of inferno, or hell, or underworld. And they fall alive into this underworld. The rest of the people who got carried away or followed him, they don't get swallowed up, because it's a different story for them. They start running along in all directions, but a fire emerges out of the tabernacle and consumes them. Very harsh punishment. Everything in that period of time is very harsh, but we want to abstract all this and understand what it all means. So this is the end of the story. Uh, We'll just add one more thing, which is that there's a story in the Gemara, in the Talmud. Uh, there are many very special travel stories by one of the greatest sages, who was called Rabbi Bar Baruchana. Rabbi Bar Bar-Khana has these incredible tall tales of traveling the world and seeing amazing sights. And and some of it sounds crazy, some of it sounds just weird, some of it sounds very deep. It, it's all very deep. There are a lot of explanations for the stories. One of the stories is that this very simple Arab t- tells him, I can show you the descendants of Korach. And they go to a certain place where there's a crevice in the ground, and they listen, and they hear the descendants of Korach singing, Moshe Emet veTorato Emet. Moses is true, and his Torah is true, and we are liars. We were We were wrong. So there's a kind of idea that they did tshuva, they repented in some way. And it goes all the way to saying that as they fell, they started repenting and realizing that they were wrong. Um, So now we want to understand this whole idea, and we want to understand it in the context of the question we posed in the beginning. The origin of disagreements and the, um, especially the idea of of left-right. So, In Kabbalistic terminology, the conflict here, as we said, is between the Levites and the priests. Or at least one Levite representing a certain faction of the Levites, a version of the Levites. There were also many, many good Levites. But Koch is representing a negative version of what the Levites can be, can become. And of course, he's opposing Aaron. So Kabbalistically, the Levi and the priests, Kohen and Levi, they correspond, that Kohen corresponds to the sephira of loving kindness, chesed, which is a right-hand sephira. And the Levites correspond to the Sefira of gvura, or might, which is a left-hand sephira. So these are the two major Sefirot that define the right axis of the sephirot versus the left axis of the Sefirot. The right axis of the tzvirot is called the axis of loving-kindness, chesed, and it's embodied by the priests, and the left axis is called the axis of might, or gvura, and it's embodied by the Levites. And we're we're not talking yet about left-right in in contemporary politics. We're talking about Kabbalistic terms. We'll connect it to the political terms in, in a few minutes. Now, Chesed and Gvora, they also correspond to the first day of creation and the second day of creation. What happened on the second day of creation? That's the second day, it's the day of Gevura, and it corresponds to the Levites and to Korach. On the second day, the waters were separated to higher waters and lower waters. And the idea is that on the second day, the machloket the disagreement, was created. There were no disagreements on the first day. The first day isn't called the first day. It's called the one day, Yom Echad. It was a day of oneness. All was one. It was the Spirit of God hovering over the water. It was Just, just everything was one. God was one. Creation was one. One water, one God. But on the second day, those waters were divided into lower waters and higher waters. And the firmament was placed in between. And this is the creation of disagreement, of disparity. This was the world truly splitting into two. And there was the heavens, and there was the lower waters, the ocean, that reflected the heavens, but it wasn't the heavens themselves. One is made of air, or it's, it's all water, but it's, it's, it's gaseous water. It's water that's, that became like gas, so it's like air. And the lower waters are actual waters, physical waters you can drown in. You can drink, you can drown in. And this is, now Korach was a Levite. And he drew his power from the sphere of Gvurah, And he used this power to create a machloket שאינה leshem shamayim, A disagreement that's not for the sake of heaven. There are two types of disagreement in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers. It talks about Machloket shamayim, machloket, a disagreement that is for the sake of heaven, that is both parties strive for the truth. And this is like shamayim and Hillel. And there is also a disagreement that is for the sake of one's ego, or for the sake of power, or for the sake of rising up the letter of here the hierarchy of, of success, or the hierarchy of power. And the prime example of this is Korach and his group rebelling against Aaron and Moses. So on on Monday, the machloket was created, this disagreement, but disagreement itself can be done in two ways. There's a disagreement regarding how, this, how we should disagree. And there's a good way of disagreeing, and a bad way of disagreeing. And this is all part of the split that's happening on the second day. Now, where's Moses in this picture? We, I said before that Korach is opposing Aaron more than he's opposing Moses. Moses is just one person. Aaron and his family is a caste. And, there, and the whole argument here is who will be the priests? So where's Moses if we said that uh, the, the priests are on the right hand and the Levites are on the left hand and the priests are all about loving kindness and they want to make the world one? They want to connect the heavens and the earth. That's what the priests do. They elevate the sacrifices and the prayers, and they bring down divine light into the world, divine blessing into the world, and they bless us. And it all goes through them. They're chesed, they're connecting. And the Levites at least have the potential to create this kind of disparity. So the good Levites don't do this. They they're probably, they know how to do a machloket that is for the sake of heaven. But the the Levites, who suddenly stray off, like Korach, they're using the power of machloket in a negative way. So where's Moshe here? Moshe would be that. Moshe would be the central line. Moshe, Moses, who is the giver of the Torah, he can see the truth of both the right and the left. Moses is all about seeing all aspects of reality, all aspects of the Torah. He understands the 70 facets of the Torah. He understands both the right and the left. The famous idea of why he's stuttering. To stutter in Hebrew is Legam Gim. Legam gem is like to say both Gam and Gam, which is also and also. He's trying to say also the priests are true and also the Levites are true. They're all true. And so he's holding on. Now, Korach doesn't appear to be arguing with Moshe. He's a, he appears to be arguing, arguing with Aaron. But, but really he's arguing against Moshe because Moshe wants to say that both sides of the equation are true. There's a place for both. But Koch is trying to create the split and and to be to compete with Aaron. Later on, when the children of the descendants of Korach do Chuva, they sing Moshe emet vetorato emet. Meaning, I now, we now recognize that the central line, the line of that, the line of Moses, is absolutely true. And there's room both for the left and the right, both for the Levites and the priests and everything they represent. So by going against Aaron and the priesthood, they're really going against Moses. So when they do tshuva, they bless Moses and his Torah, not just Moses. And because the Torah is all about bridging the left and the right. Let's try and get a a deep understanding of what it means left and right, and the whole split into left and right that happened on the second day. There's a verse in Isaiah, verses 48, that says, My own hand founded the earth, my right hand spread out the skies. I call unto them, let them stand up. Let's read this again it's my own hand or my hand, just my hand, doesn't say which hand, founded the earth. Now there's a rule, whenever the the Bible is talking about just a hand without saying which hand, it would be the left hand. And we see this very clearly because the next words are, whereas my right hand spread out the skies. So God is telling us that he's creating the earth with his left hand, and he's creating the heavens with his right hand, right? He's just saying hand, but he means his left hand. My hand founded the earth, that's his left hand, and my right hand spread out the sky on top of the earth. Let's look into this a little bit. The earth and the heavens, that's a hierarchy. It's, it's a vertical line. The earth is below and the heavens are above, and it's very clearly two different things. And they're one above the other one below the other. But when you're talking about your right and left hand, it appears to be equal. They come, they stem from your shoulders, your shoulders are equal, your hands are equal all, all, all along. So God is saying something very interesting. He says, for me, it's my right and left hand, it's absolutely equal. But then, the way it works is that is that I use my left hand to create the lower aspect of reality, which is the earth. And I use my right hand to place the heavens on top of it. So suddenly, what's equal in origin becomes a hierarchy. It becomes above and below. But then it goes back to being equal. Because then he says, I call unto them, let them stand up. And, and it doesn't, it's not a perfect translation. It's really, let them stand up together. That's the original verse. Amdu yachdav, they should stand up together, fully equal. So what's the idea? The idea is that we look at the world and we experience the world. When you look at it through religious, symbolic eyes, you see that the world is has above and below. And below is the earth, and below is the body, and below is physicality, and everything it represents. And above, you have the heavens, and spirituality, and the soul. And it appears to be a very clear hierarchy. On the other hand, God is saying, no, no, you should know that for me it's just my right and left hand. My right hand is the one behind the heavens. They reflect my right hand. And the earth, which appears to be lower and less important and less significant and physical and is pulling you down and has to do with your body and has to do with what is decaying as opposed to eternal and all of this this is coming from my left hand they're absolutely equal for me and i call on to them to stand up together so the idea behind this is this the idea behind this is that when god is creating the world on the second day it splits into above and below and the, the what's below is hiding God because um, the physical matter is opaque. Light doesn't go through it. Whereas the skies, the heavens, as a metaphor for spirituality, for the soul, that's transparent. Earth, or physical matter, is heavy and it goes downwards. Whereas air, hot air, something that's spiritual, that's light, it goes up light is a two has two meanings it's both versus light versus heavy and also light versus dark it all has to do with what's above so what's above is, is like a transparent window that you can see god's face through when you look at the heavens you remember god you remember that there's light and space and air and freedom and in something that's eternal and boundless. When you look at the, at the skies, that's what you feel. However, as you look downwards at the earth, you feel something opaque and heavy, and it's pulling you down, and that you and that's limited and constrained, and 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 that's, and that and that doesn't. Uh, you can't see God there. Or it doesn't shine. Uh, God doesn't shine as clearly. So there's an a transparent aspect to reality which is like the heavens, and there's an opaque aspect to reality which is like the earth. But in truth, it's all divine. This is God's will. God wants to create a world which is split into two basic aspects, and I'll, and the heavens and the earth here are just a metaphor for something even more basic, which is called in Kabbalah the side of holiness, and the other side. The side of holiness, Sitra de Kdusha, is every aspect of reality that is clearly and consciously connected to godliness and to the remembrance of the godly origin of the world. If it's connected to holiness, to kdusha, if it uplifts you, if it reminds you of God, this is part of the aspect of the side of holiness. But if it's, it makes you forget about God, and if it makes you run away from God, and if it makes you makes God's face more hidden for you, this is the aspect of unholiness, or Sitra-Acha, the other side, the negative side. And the word Sitra-Acha in Hebrew also connotes the back side, because Acher, achra, Acher is the other, Acher is also achor; it's the back side. We ourselves have these two sides. We have our face on the fore of our being, which is where our consciousness resides, and we can see what's before us. And there's the back of our head, of our bodies, which is what we don't see, and we forget about. What's behind me, I forget about I don't see it, and I forget about it. What's in front of me, I see it. If I turn my face in a certain direction, then I'm conscious of it, and I care about it, and and I go in that direction. If I turn my back, I don't care about it anymore. So, this is how the world is. But God is saying, everything is divine. The earth, and the body, and physicality, and the Sitra Akhra. It's all full of divine sparks. And I'm there also. And you have to, uh, you have to experience this. I want you to discover me also in the physical realm, also in the realm of unholiness. I want you to elevate the holy sparks that are hiding in the lower waters, in the earth, in the body, in the animal soul, in things that are considered negative or bad, there's a holy spark there, which in different ways you need to find and elevate. By the way, it's it's no coincidence that God is saying that the heavens he created with his right hand and the earth with his left hand. Why is it no coincidence? When you think about a regular person, I'm not talking about left-handed people; they're the exception to the rule. But most people are right-handed. When you think about right-handed people, by the way, even people who are uh, left-handed, then you, it, it, you would say that their left hand is the more dexterous hand, and dexterous means right, right, the right hand. That's the origin of the word. In Hebrew, it's the same. The, you have the one hand in which you are more meyuman. Meyuman is dexterous, or agile, or, or capable. And this is, comes from the word yamin. So, and, and people who can use both hands are called ambidextrous, meaning they're right-handed on both hands. So the general rule, what most people are, is that the, the hand that they, they use to write and to do all kinds of fine uh, actions with, it's the right hand. So the idea is that when you think about the right and the left hand, think about your, your, if your right hand, if you're right handed, it's your right hand. If you're left handed, it's your dexterous hand, which is for you is the right hand. So the right hand is like it's transparent. It's like the heavens. It abides by my will. It lets my will flow through it with no objection. When I command my right arm to do something, it just does it. I don't feel it to be to oppose me or to put a place a barrier before me. It doesn't have its own reality. It's like the heavens, it's like the air. It's like the sky, it's like the soul. It's transparent. It's like a an optic fiber. And my will goes through that optic fiber. However, when I give the same command, like let's say writing a word or drawing a picture. I give the exact same command to my left hand. My experience is that my left hand is arguing with me and doesn't want to do my bidding. And it it doesn't cooperate. It's opaque, or at least more opaque than the right hand. It's like the earth. It's like the body. It's like the lower waters. It doesn't do what I want it to do because it has its own physical Uh, presence, so to speak. Its own ego, in a way, almost. So, these are the two aspects the two aspects of reality. Now, God is saying, for you it's a hierarchy. You would say that the heavens and and the spirituality and the soul are up there and physicality and the body uh, are below. But I'm telling you, it's equal. And in order for us to fully appreciate the fact that it's equal, then we're also told in many, many ways that in many different contexts, the left aspect, sorry, the the lower aspect, is in principle even higher than the spiritual aspect. So, for example... uh, Ultimately, God's will is that we perform His commandments. A commandment is an actual physical act. And the actual physical act is more important than just learning the Torah. If you learn the Torah and you don't perform the commandments, then it's th- that's the whole point is that you perform the commandments. Ha'ikar maaseh, the ikar, the main thing, is the action. And the main thing is elevating the spark from the body. And it's, it's in Kabbalah, it says that the root of the vessels is higher than the root of the lights. Or that the sparks you find in inanimate matter is even higher than the sparks you can find in, in living matter, in, in living beings. And all of this, there's an, a reversal of hierarchies, which creates a full equality. Equality can only be created if you have these two opposite hierarchies one aspect in which the right is higher than the left, and one aspect in which left is higher than the right. And also, Shammai and Hillel, the people that we said, that they knew what Machloket L'shem Shammai was, that they, had, um, um, they did know how to disagree. One of their most basic disagreements were that Shammai said that the heavens were created before the earth, and Hillel said that the earth was created before the heavens. And it's not just a question of which came first temporally, it's also a question of which is more valuable, which is higher in essence. So Hillel is saying that the earth are higher in essence than the heavens. And Shammai is saying that the heavens are higher in essence than the earth. And we know that these and these are the words of the living God. So they're, all, they're both equally true. Okay, so now, now let's see what's, how this all connects to Korach. Korach the pshat meaning, the literal meaning, is that he was a, a, an evil man, a wicked man. He was a sinner. And that's why he was punished. He had to be swallowed by the earth all the way going to the underworld. And it's a grave sin. But in Kabbalah Chassidut, it's always explained that his root is very high, very just, very righteous, and his immediately him and his children starting doing tshuva as they were falling down and ultimately they will be fully justified there's a high root to what they're saying so let's see what's happening here on the surface they wanted they spoke about equality but it was hiding the fact that they really wanted to go up the hierarchy so if you want to go up the hierarchy you're not really arguing with the concept of hierarchy you're just arguing with the fact that you don't. You want you. You're resentful of the fact that you're not the highest up on the hierarchy. So that's the sinning aspect. However, Kabalan Hasidu talk about the fact that his slogan, the slogan that he was marching under, the slogan of of the slogan of equality, although it was just like some some sort of a cynical, um, uh, you know, usage of this concept of equality. In Kabbalah it's explained, there was something very, very deep, very high about this slogan. He was absolutely right. There is an aspect in which it's all equal. That's what we just saw. All of the hierarchies that we see in this world, dividing the higher from the lower, the wiser from the less wise, the more righteous from the less righteous, the more spiritual from the more physical, all these hierarchies are ultimately cancelled out. They cancel each other out. And it's all equal. God's light, God's presence is equally revealed in all aspects of reality. For him, it's his right hand and his left hand, and he's going to call everything and tell the entire creation to stand up together, both the heavens and the earth, both the high and the low, and his omnipresence will be revealed to everyone. And this is exactly what Koch was talking about. He was saying, everything should be, everything is equal. All of the Jewish people are equal, and all of reality is equal. In the Midrash, he also said, we don't need a mezuzah if we have a house full of books, because we have all the Torah. We don't need a tzitzit, because if all of our talit is made of t'chelet, made of azur. If everything becomes spiritual, we don't need those details anymore. Um, and, in, and it was, again, It it all sounds very cynical. But according to Kabbalah, there's something very true about all of it. And there's something in which all of it, what it's talking about, it's very true, it's very real. It needs to be elevated. The concept of equality needs to be elevated, but not in a way that you make fun of the hierarchy. The hierarchy is leading you up to the notion of equality. Equality. You need, to, have, you need to, to extend the hierarchy all the way up to, to believe in one God above everything. And you also need to admit the fact that you are yourself hierarchical. Don't pretend you're not hierarchical. You want to be the priest yourself, so you're hierarchical. What are you talking about? And also, the whole point of, equi- of, of serious, deep equality is to show that not that everyone is just equal in some superficial way, but to show that the one person is better than the other person in one thing, and the other person is better than the first person in another thing. So this one can teach the other one math, and the other one can teach the first one poetry, and, and it's two hierarchies. And when you have two hierarchies, that makes for deep equality. Deep equality is an equality in which we can all teach one another something. So that's not some superficial slogan of equality. So again, he was marching under a superficial slogan of equality. But in, but in truth, he was aiming at something very true and very high, which is what Moshe knows. Because Moshe is true and his Torah is true, Moshe knows, that's why he's stuttering, and his Torah knows that there's truth in all aspects of reality. Now, let's move to seeing how how all this connects to right and left in contemporary politics. So, on the surface, you would think it is absolutely no connection between the very modern, very late concept of right-wing and left-wing in politics and the Kabbalistic concepts of right and left. Absolutely no connection, no historical connection. The Kabbalistic concepts of right and left are very, very old. And they have to do with very deep symbolic. Uh, they have a very deep symbolic sort of undertone or undercurrent. It has to do with the fact that right-handed people, like I said before, that the, my right hand is uh, reflects very perfectly my own consciousness, whereas my my left hand is sort of in disagreement with it. And 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 that has to do with the idea that there's something. Uh, sinister about the left the the original word sinistra is left in Latin the word sinister in English is coming from the word left so this whole all of, the, all of these connotations that the right is good and the left is bad or can be bad has a sinister overtone to it uh, all this is stemming from very from very deep um, um from very deep um, symbolic uh, notions of what it means to be right and left, whereas left and right in contemporary politics is a child of the French Revolution. After the French Revolution took place, then they organized uh, the I don't know ex- the exact details, but they were they were the supporters of the Ancien Regime, the old, the ancient regime, the old regime. They wanted to preserve as much as the existing institutions as possible and they supported the uh the nobility and they were on the right whereas those who were for the revolution and were for pushing forward more with the revolution they sat on the left side and that's how the notion the modern notion of right wing and left wing in politics were born and to this day the word right right winged is used to describe the group that's more in favor of preserving, conserving, being a conservative, conserving uh, existing institutions, whereas the left calls itself more progressive as opposed to conservative. It wants to progress into the future, which means it wants to shed off the past and wants to replace the past with something new. And also goes very much together with the idea that the right is more hierarchical in nature, because ancient uh, and traditional institutions are very much hierarchical in nature, whereas the left is more talking about egalitarianism and equality and having having everyone be equal, and it goes along with rejecting the with the institutions and traditions of the past that are more hierarchical, and in even a deeper way. The many of those institutions that the right is trying to preserve are religious institutions. Religious institutions means that they believe in the highest of all levels of the hierarchy, which is the transcendent uh, existence, the existence of God. And so it's very much, it's very much here. It's not just a human hierarchy, it's a, it's a religious hierarchy. And the left tends to be more secular or atheist, and so he wants equality in a very, very substantial way. So in the French Revolution, it really went together. There was, they wanted to, you know, pull down the king from his throne. And not just the earthly king, but also the divine king. They wanted to create a secular republic versus a religious uh, hierarchical society. So, you would think that right and left in modern politics has nothing to do with right and left in Kabbalistic terms. But actually, it, there's divine providence at work here. And the two notions that appear to be absolutely arbitrary, that those were sitting on the right-hand side of the hall, and the, the, the supporters of the ancient regime, and the revolutionaries were sitting on the left, it, was, it matched up perfectly with the Kabbalistic concepts. How do we see this? We see this in the fact that the right axis of the Sefirot is all about transmitting the light, the divine light, from above to below in as faithful as way as possible. The right hand axis Sefirot, which are wisdom, loving kindness, and eternity or victory. (laughs) chokhmah, netzach, hod. Sorry. Chesed they're all about transmitting the divine light in a faithful way. In Hebrew, faithful is ne'eman. It connects linguistically to yamin. Whereas the left-hand sefirot, which are binah and gvurah and Hod, understanding, might, and thanksgiving or acknowledgement, uh, they're all about presenting the opposite perspective, the perspective that's coming from below to above. And it's very much like the right hand, left hand dynamics of, of, of modern politics. So now let's all connect this two back to, to Korach. Um, Korach is talking about fighting the traditional hierarchy. He's saying, up until now we had this hierarchy of Kohen, Levi, Israel. And let's now let's have equality. All of the congregation is holy. God is in our midst. And he is a leftist. He is a leftist, not just in Kabbalistic terms, that is coming from the spira sphera of Gvura. And he kinda of connects to the second day, the day of disagreement. And that because he's a Levite, he's also a leftist in modern terms. Koch is a uh, uh, left-winged activist. And like all leftist activists, he's trying to uh, topple down the existing traditional institutions by talking about equality. But, and this is something that happens, uh, has happened several times in history, the language of egalitarianism is hiding a very hierarchical point of view, but but one that isn't obvious on the surface. So how do we see this in history? Three examples. First example is the French Revolution itself. In the French Revolution, the revolutionaries, they wanted a republic, a a democracy. They wanted everyone to be equal. They didn't like the idea of a king and the idea of nobility. They didn't like the caste system. What they ended up being having is a very, very, uh, it's a, is a dictatorship. They ended up creating a dictatorship that would kill not just the the people of the nobility and the kings, but everyone who opposed it, and it became very, very much authoritarian. Second uh, example is communism. Communism is all about equality. It's about it's about erasing um, uh, economic, uh, you know, the economic. How do you, um, what's the word, ma'amadut? Again, the economic levels or the economic, um, um, you know, strata within society. So they don't want there to be uh, people who are more rich and less rich. So what they do is they, they talk about equality, but ultimately they create a very, very authoritarian dictatorship with a very, very clear hierarchy of the ones who are in the party and the ones who are not in the party. And everyone who opposes it, you have to put them in a gulag. And the third example is more subtle. But some people worry that it's going in similar directions as the communism and the French Revolution. Is the whole notion of political correctness in our generation? Political correction is all about correctness. Is all about um, not offending anyone and giving room for everyone, and especially being sensitive of minorities or disenfranchised groups. However. It, the tools the means that it's using in order to uh, bring about the changes it wants to see that we're all very politically correct and we don't offend everyone and we're uh, we're uh, considerate of everyone's needs and everyone's uh, you know beliefs and so on is they use government regulations and laws and sometimes even ways of intimidation in order to achieve this so if you're not politically correct, you would be fired, you would be shamed on social media, uh, you would be uh, you you wouldn't get any money, you wouldn't get a job, and so on, and and you would be you know metaphorically you would be ostracized or you would be hung in the public square. And the idea the idea the concept here is is, is the following: the concept here is that there is authoritarianism. Or the concept of working as a hierarchy, thinking in hierarchical terms, and using force on both the left and the right. But whereas when the right is authoritarian, the right is explicitly authoritarian. When the right is saying I think authority is important, then they they just they just say it. They say I think it's good that there are uh, that there is a king. I think it's it's good that there are certain people who are rabbis and leaders. I think it's good that there are social institutions. And I think it's also good that there are uh, economic levels in, in the world, that there are rich people and poor people, that that's how it is, that's how the world works. And um, and they're, they're very clear about the fact that they believe in hierarchies. The right isn't a shame to talk about hierarchies. The left version of authoritarianism, leftist authoritarianism, is harder to identify. Because it never speaks in the name of authority or in the name of hierarchy. It speaks in the name of equality. It says, I want everyone to be equal, and I think everyone is equal, and no one is better than anyone else, and no people is better than any other people, and so on. But then, they would be very authoritarian about how to uh, bring about their, uh, their view of the world. And they would say, if you don't think like me, then they would shame you, and they would, uh, they would tell you you're a bigot, or you're a, you know, something phobe, and all of this. And, and, and sometimes the contradictions are, are very easy to spot. That someone's saying, I'm a very liberal very open. I believe everyone should have a voice. But if you're anti-liberal, and if you're conservative, and if you don't think like me, then I have nothing to do with you, I can't speak to you, I can't understand you, and I think you're evil. So, how inclusive is that? Where is the inclusivity we're just talking about? So, this is exactly what's going on with Korach. Korach is talking about equality, but really, he is um, um, he is he is trying to create a rebellion and trying to be striving to be on the highest level of the hierarchy where he can exert more more power So this is very interesting to uh, um, To see all this um, So there were some more concepts I wanted to go into But uh, we we're running out of time so we're just going to end with one uh, With one final point Moshe is true and his Torah is true and the Torah holds the root source and the the essential truths of all sides of all debates and all disagreements when you study the Torah deeply you can see that there's also truth in the left as we saw here that in Kabbalah Korach is very much elevated because he's talking about the future equality that will one day reign in the world and will one day be evident in the world. And in which we'll see that the all the left-winged um, uh, perspectives and opinions, they all had a kernel of truth to them. And there's something very deep that they're trying to say. And it'll be elevated. Um, but... This is when you're high above, you know, Mount Sinai or the heavens, and you're you're holding on to the truth of the Torah, and you can see all aspects of everything. But as you're going down here, Korach is taking a side. That's what the first Rashi on the parsha, that Korach is taking a side against the priests, and taking a side, he's saying, "I'm on the left side," so that forces people who are believing Jews, religious, observant Jews, who in their heart of hearts, they want to say everyone is right, everyone is true. I see the truth in every opinion in the world. I can see the divine spark in every idea in the world, if I listen closely. But we have to take a side also. Going down into this reality means taking a side. And the idea we're seeing here is that Moses is taking the side of Aaron. He's siding with Aaron. This is an answer to the question, how come religion is always closer, feels closer to the right-wing aspect of of politics than to the left-hand? In some ways, religious people can look at the left and say, I fully understand you. But on the whole, the more religious you are, the likelier you are to vote for a right-wing party or to support right-winged opinions. And it's no coincidence. The, the, idea, the, the reason for this is, is that the right is more faithful, ne'eman, from the word right, to concepts, religious Torah, faithful concepts that have to do with believing God. Whereas the left, it's more hidden. It's like the opaque ground or body. Or it has to do with, with, as we said before, that God creates the earth with his left hand. So we also have to take a side. We are forced to to say, well, if you push me, I have to say I'm more right-winged than I am left-winged. But but there's a big but coming afterwards. I'm not a secular right-winger. A secular right winger is purely a right winger, if you're, even if he has a yarmulke on his head. But if a truly Torah thinking someone who's looking at the word through a Torah perspective, they would say I'm more right wing than I'm left wing, but they would think, and you would hear it in their voice when they're talking about the left, you would hear more empathy to the left. Why? Because really they feel like Moses, they want to, they want to stutter both the right and the left are true. But because I can't live in the world as a stutterer, I need to take an, a, I need to take a side. So I'm going with the right, I'm cooperating with the right. I have more in common with them in simple matters and in, in, in almost all issues. I feel that I have to side with them. However, it doesn't mean that I think that the left are fully wrong, not at all. I think that the holy sparks that are in the left are higher than the truth that's in the right. because the notions that they're talking about, which is equality and everyone having being equally close to God and and the weak given their room and the disenfranchised given their place to shine and their place to be. This is very, very deep Torah values and it has to do with the concept that ultimately God is omnipresent everywhere, in everything in every opinion. So this is the the message of, of this whole this whole uh, uh, meditation into Korach and his group and the disagreement, his disagreement with with Aaron is that in the when we go deep into the Torah, we see that it's all equal and that every opinion has a room. But as the Torah is descending towards this this world, and this world is a world full of Korach people, and it divides into right and left, and it has to divide into right and left, because it's two aspects of how God is revealed to the world. Then there's a process of how to connect both the right and the left back to heavens. You start with the right, because the right is more transparent. It's more like a like a channel that wants to let God's light go through it. It's more traditional, it's more conservative, it's it understands more how hierarchies work and it and it also speaks in the name of God. It God's God's name is you hear it more on the right than you would hear it on the left. It's 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 more religious. So you go along with that. But your ultimate goal is to look at each and every debate, each and every disagreement, and say, well, you know, as a practical solution, or going forward, we need to side more with the right as as a starting point. But ultimately, we want to redeem and elevate the spark of truth that's in the left. There's something about what the left is saying that's very, very deep. So we don't have any time to um, give examples for this. But you can think of your own examples. In every argument, in every debate that's in the public sphere between right and left, you, the more religious you are, the more you, you, you feel you identify with the right. But you need to work very hard on finding a, at least one point, one element of identification with the left because that is elevating Korach's spark, which is the spark in which you see, and we all see, That God's will, God's light, God's truth is really omnipresent and it's just more buried in the leftist agendas just as the divine light is more hidden in physical matter and the body and the lower waters and the earthly realm. But it's still absolutely there and we need to uncover it. So, Bezat Hashem, we shall marry to uh, have that all our disagreements should be for the sake of heaven, that although we need to side more with the right, we should do so not for the sake of proving ourselves right, or for the sake of being the winners in a given argument or a situation, but because we are striving to find the truth, we are striving to do it for the sake of heaven, and heaven is is guarding, watching over all of us and both the right and the left and that means that we want to see the truth in the left also and elevated and then Korach will be will rise again from the underworld and we'll all be together right and left singing and dancing with the light of redemption. So that's our class for this week's Parsha. Hi, if you enjoyed this class please click the like button and subscribe to the channel on youtube also make sure to click the bell icon to keep the classes flowing and free of charge please consider supporting us on patreon an amazing platform for supporting independent creators you're also welcome to join our weekly live zoom class every sunday evening israel time you can find all the links in the description below thank you very much keep healthy and see you soon